0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. The Black Lives Matter movement has prompted media all over the world to weigh up the way they work and what they do when it comes to race and whether they're part of the problem or the solution. This week we hear from a journalist who was asking questions about racism in New Zealand and got told to look at her own newsroom first. So she did. But before all that, 10 million COVID cases worldwide, more than half a million dead and rising fast. Our near neighbours in Australia won't even allow some people to go from state to state. So how come some in the media are pushing so hard to open the borders and kickstart international tourism? And as the Prime Minister pleads for perspective and coverage of controversial lapses at the border, is it out of proportion?
2: Yeah, actually, now that you've mentioned it... (laughs) That symbol might be a little bit off. Right.
0: Yeah. So it's not meant to have a a great glaring sun. Sun.
2: I didn't notice that until right
0: now.
1: No, no. That was TVNZ's breakfast show weather guy Matty McLean spotting a mistake in his weather map on last Monday morning show. And that prompted John Campbell to crack this joke.
3: (laughs) Hey, just go and blame Ashley Bloomfield. He done it.
0: You could, and he won't even hold it
3: against me. Well, I, d- I don't have proof that it's not <laughs> true. <laughs> oh, Michael Woodhouse. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
3: yeah.
1: <laughs> And that would have made sense to viewers who were watching the show earlier, when National Party MP Michael Woodhouse pointed the finger of blame at the health minister in an interview about things that had gone wrong in the management of quarantine and isolation lately, and prompted a review of the system, which concluded it was under extreme stress, but not broken. And all that has been the source of many headlines lately, some sparked by Michael Woodhouse's startling claim that a homeless man had joined the line for a free fortnight of five-star quarantine in Auckland.
3: And I want to talk about your homeless man in the facilities mm-hmm. in the hotel in Auckland. He didn't exist, did he?
4: Well, of all the things that I've highlighted over the last couple of weeks, which shows what a botch management of this process has been, that was the least important. Hold,
2: and hold, actually,
1: hold, hold on a sec, hold on a sec. And on TBNZ's breakfast show on Monday, Michael Woodhouse admitted to John Campbell he didn't have any rock-solid proof, but still claimed it was an anecdote from a reliable source. And he told RNZ's Morning Report the same day, the government must think there's some truth to the claim if they'd worked so hard to investigate it.
4: And the fact that the government ran down that rabbit hole to try and see how it was, uh, whether it was true suggests to me they believed it could have happened. Well...
3: They had to believe it could have happened because if it did happen, they needed to find that person to establish whether or not they might have had COVID-19.
4: Well, the irony of that, Corinne, is that had the managed isolation process uh, been working effectively, uh, they would have been as
3: as safe as anybody.
1: Some fairly tortured hypothetical logic there from Michael Woodhouse. And his other claim on Monday was that although there isn't any evidence of community transmission of COVID-19 here over the past month, only at the border... That doesn't mean there isn't any.
4: It's implausible in the extreme to think that uh, those people who were previously not tested either uh, had COVID while they were in isolation or potentially left with it.
1: Michael Woodhouse went on to claim to know of a swag of cases where transmission was a possibility because of failures in oversight. Now, it was, of course, Michael Woodhouse who revealed to Parliament the COVID-carrying pair who were given a compassionate exemption. But after that Homeless Man episode, reporters and editors will believe it when they see it from Michael Woodhouse, by which time it might be too late if it's true. But writing on scoop.co.nz, commentator Gordon Campbell reckoned that some reporters were only too willing to believe the worst and echo the language of politicians about botches at the border.
3: Amidst all this talk of fiascos and chaos, anyone could be forgiven for failing to grasp that, as yet, not a single person has become ill, let alone died, as a result of these allegedly calamitous lapses in border security and quarantine testing.
1: Gordon Campbell found this puzzling because...
3: Normally, the New Zealand media is proud to inform us if a Kiwi wins an OK dinghy contest in Scandinavia or creates something that goes viral on social media. After all, it hasn't been by accident that this country has become a safe haven in a world of carnage.
1: Now, when John Campbell suggested the opposite on TVNZ's breakfast show on Monday, the Prime Minister didn't like it.
3: I guess the thing that Michael Woodhouse is saying is, and, 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 is that that's good luck rather than good management. Have you got the borders sound I Totally, now?
0: John, I totally reject that. I think frankly it is insulting to say to the New Zealand public that we're in the position we're in with a virus because of good luck.
1: And in that plea for perspective, John Campbell noted Jacinda Ardern's change in tone like this. You're in a Churchillian mood for oratory this morning, and I need some quick answers from you if that's possible. Churchillian was a bit over the top, but his finest hour was also protecting the borders of his island nation back in the day, and we today are uniting to fight an enemy at the airports, in the hotels and the roadside testing stations. But after Churchill's team won the Battle of Britain 80 years ago this month, they had to cross the borders to win the war, though John Campbell wasn't counting on that. You were yes. hoping, possibly, for a transportation bubble by September. That's not going to happen, is it?
0: Oh, look, ultimately we're not going to do anything before it's safe.
1: Nonetheless, John Campbell's co-host Haley Holt seemed quite keen on the idea.
0: We could wing our way to the Gold Coast, maybe. Mate. Mate.
1: Have a JB, <laughs> JB and Coke on the Gold Coast.
0: Oh, man, it's hard. I went.
1: Um... But Hayley Holt went on to tell John Campbell that she didn't have to leave the country to work out why JB's on the GC was a bit of a pipe dream for now.
0: I went to Rotorua, turned into the motel, and it was right next to the Ibis quarantine facility. Oh, right. <laughs> and out our back window, you could see them walking around and around in the underground car park, and then this tiny little bit of outside area, and they just going round and round and round and round and round and round and round. I was a bit like, ooh, <laughs> we're next to the ibis. You know, you think that it could just sort of fly across the, across the fence, but it can't.
1: No. Uh, no. Mm. No, it can't. <laughs>
2: no.
1: <laughs> having, said, having said that, I'm just <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: and as the nervous laughter died down there, co-host Jenny May Clarkson reminded Breakfast viewers why a trans-Tasman bubble was not a goer just yet.
0: Making news this morning, officials in the Australian state of Victoria are stepping up efforts to squash its COVID-19 spike after a further 49 cases were reported. More on that
1: but in spite of all that, some in the media this past week have been insisting that the reopening of borders and travel overseas was not for some other time in the future. In the Sunday Star Times last weekend, Stuff's political editor Luke Malpass said New Zealand could end up a COVID-free cul-de-sac for the rest of the world. Unless a second wave of
3: COVID sees the globe drift into a Mad Max-type world, with New Zealand becoming a beacon of civilization, we can't simply live shut off forever.
1: And his fear was shared at length by News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking with his listeners this past week.
4: So Europe's open, the borders are down, the planes are flying, the trains are going. And so the question is, how long are we going to keep our borders closed and what's our plan? Well, bookings are indeed being
1: taken in the UK in anticipation of limited travel next week between some European countries, including the UK, Germany, France and Spain. But it's not true that Europeans are on the move en masse for their holidays just yet. Despite plans to restart the tourism industry, the latest UK Foreign Office advice, for example, states that Brits are still not permitted
4: to travel abroad. But Mike said we should be thinking about letting travellers in here as well. There's really nothing stopping us opening with Australia, and there's certainly nothing stopping us opening with the Pacific Islands. Now, one thing that's
1: stopping us from opening up to travel right now is, of course, that no-one would want to come if they have to do two weeks of quarantine, which is required. But 20 minutes later, Mike Hosking
4: said this... The world is starting to travel, and there are implications in there for us. We'll talk to Jacinda Ardern in about an hour's time, 12 past six. Well, Mike Hosking did talk to the Prime Minister soon after, but
1: not about opening the borders, which was a shame because he kept on talking about it unchallenged throughout the programme.
4: People all over Europe are going on holiday, right? It's summer, the borders are now largely open, planes are flying, tickets are being booked, and you can go on holiday. IATA. The aeroplane people last week issued a warning for countries like ours that if we keep borders shut, we run the risk of being left behind. Now, there's self-interest in that, of course. Uh, They're desperate for planes to fly and normality to return. But for a country like ours, for regions like central Otago, this is crippling.
1: Now, IATA is the International Air Travel Association, and it did indeed issue that warning and has been urging countries like ours to stop quarantining people. It represents 300 airlines around the world, so it does indeed have a massive vested interest, as Mike Hosking said. But Mike Hosking reckoned that what was good for
4: Big Plane is also good for us. If the whole world opens to some sort of degree, we've seen what happens. People get on with it. If they want to travel and they can, they will. And if it doesn't include us, then the only losers are us. Uh, what was the point of a great health outcome if the economic one is a catastrophe? There's a question you want to ask yourself. And for a country that needs and relies on and is beholden to the world, that, I would have thought, is a disaster. Hosking.
1: But what Mike Hosking didn't tell his listeners was, what are IATA's alternatives to quarantine to keep everybody safe? Aside from observing standard COVID-19 hygiene on the planes and keeping passengers from high and low risk countries apart while they're on the ground, the IATA plan is effectively just four bullet points. Health declarations, screening and testing by governments, it says, will add extra layers of protection and effective contact tracing, they say, can isolate most of those at risk without major disruptions. And that's about it. And most of the heavy lifting on all that would be done by the governments in the host countries and the authorities there, and not by the airline industry. So IATA is effectively asking the government, do you feel lucky? On Tuesday, there was this development, though, reported by NewsHub.
2: We're set to join a list of 14 countries the EU has deemed as safe to welcome travellers from. But as Anna bracewell World reports, there's a warning from our Prime Minister, don't go.
1: And if you do, it's at your own risk. And the prospect of a ticket to a European holiday further excited Mike Hosking.
4: Now that Europe is having fun in the summer holidays, son, and we're officially invited, Jacinda to reputation says it's too dangerous, you mustn't go. You get the sense she longs for the good old bad old days where we were all locked down and doing as we were told, and be kind was all she basically had to say each day.
1: On Thursday, the editorial running in Stuff's Daily Papers like the Press and the Dominion Post said this.
4: New Zealanders will look at the outbreak in
1: Victoria and think about how lucky we were during our own border bungles that now look overhyped by comparison. But the editorial didn't elaborate on who had done that hyping. That editorial went on to warn that COVID fatigue could create an impatience to open borders and return to business as usual. And that would be a folly, said the editorial, as most of the rest of the world is far from usual right now. And to make that point, the press ran below that the editorial from Melbourne's daily The Age, calling for a judicial inquiry into the failure of Victoria's hotel quarantine system that's put part of the city and its economy back into lockdown. Victoria, once a paragon of strict coronavirus policing, said The Age has become a paragon With planes diverted to other states, borders blocked, interstate travellers unwelcome. A real-world warning there of the dangers of opening borders to travelers, and a counterpoint to the fantasy of Europeans in the summer sun half a world away. Mike Hosking reckoned we rely on tourism to the tune of about twelve or thirteen billion dollars a year. It's actually forty billion dollars all up in total spending annually. But just under sixty percent of that is spent by us taking trips at home, and not the foreigners who are currently locked out. Also on Thursday, Air New Zealand's chief executive Greg Foran wrote to customers to say domestic travel demand is now increasing and Air New Zealand's even flying more customers to Queenstown right now than at this time last year. And he said the increase in demand had enabled Air New Zealand to rescind the redundancies of over 100 cabin crew. Flying in COVID contamination from overseas, you'd think, would quickly jeopardise that too. Europe's borders are opening, even to us, as Mike Hosking said on Newstalk ZB this week. But the same day, Ireland's independent newspaper reported that the pandemic has cast a gloom over summer sun holidays abroad. Many holidaymakers are wondering if they're worth the hassle and if their trip will be the relaxing break they'd looked forward to. Ireland's chief medical officer said in the paper that people who'd booked a getaway abroad should back out because of the risk of picking up COVID-19 and bringing it back. And... This was also in the news the same morning. The former Chief Science Advisor Sir Peter Gluckman, former Prime Minister Helen Clark and ex-Air New Zealand Chief Executive Rob Fife
3: believe an extended delay will cause huge damage to the economy. They say the strategy of eliminating COVID-19 is not sustainable and must be updated and they believe the border can open safely with an intensive testing regime and
1: better contact tracing. Sir Peter Gluckman told Morning Report that now is not the time to open up the borders, but it is the time to plan for how it could be done and to look at how places like Taiwan are already doing it and the contact tracing that we'd need to have in place, which we don't have now. Sir Peter did many more interviews on Friday on behalf of this power trio who previously held big jobs. And News Hub at 6, for instance, saw it as very much a direct prompt to the Prime Minister.
2: Reprimanded over keeping New Zealand's borders closed by three people she admires. Including
4: her former mentor, Helen Clark, and her own former science advisor. Zach Fleming reports.
2: Sir Peter Gluckman says we need a reopening plan, which implies he doesn't think we have one. Now
1: some people resented the fact that these three commanded so much media attention with the so-called conversation paper, which was only three and a half pages long, light on detail and raised no fewer than 22 separate questions. And on News Hub Nation this weekend, the Prime Minister hit back, challenging Sir Peter's backing of tech and phone-based contact tracing systems. But this is what Sir Peter, Helen Clark and Rob Fife wanted, presumably, a debate in public and in the media about how best to reopen our borders when the time comes. On his site, politic.co.nz, Richard Harman said all this was also in tune with Sir Peter Gluckman's mission to link together a small number of small advanced economies around the world, including New Zealand, and scientific experts cooperating in ways that diplomatics and political leaders around the world seem to struggle with during the current crisis. And that sounds a bit more like a plan that the media could examine, rather than the lobbying of overseas airlines and tourism and pundits pointing to Europe's holiday hotspots in a bid to speed up the opening of borders.
4: It's a systemic issue. There's, there's many many things that will come into changing um, the face and, and the construct of an agency. I think it's going to take uh, a long time, but every bit of progress is, is important.
1: That was the voice of Kim Pick, the executive creative director of ad agency VMLY&R. And there she was speaking about the ad industry here in a new video in a series called The Faces of Our Industry. That's described as a celebration of the diversity within our sector by the ad industry's umbrella group, the Communications Council, which produced that series with sponsorship from Google. From gender balance, diversity and inclusion, there are waves of progress happening across the board, says the Communications Council, and clearly it wants us to know about that. But in her video released on Tuesday, Kim Pick also said this.
4: There's been a... Um huge amount of interest and energy around this at the moment and my hope is that it's not going to go away and it's not one of those things where you have activism for a short amount of time and then it disappears because unfortunately historically that is the truth that every 10 years issues flare up you have a lot of energy and promise around them and then they go away and it goes back to being the way it was before so there does appear to be a new energy that's happening at the moment and I do believe that's going to make a difference
1: well, right now, much of the energy she was talking about there flows from the Black Lives Matter movement. Like many other industries, advertising, entertainment and news media are all weighing up what they do, how they work, and whether they're part of the problem or the solution. And here at MediaWatch we'll be looking at how the media are responding to this and what they do to try and counter racism and improve their diversity. And this week, Hayden Donnell looks at how one journalist who was asking questions about racism here in New Zealand got told to look at her own newsroom first, which was awkward, but she did, and then wrote about it.
2: On Monday, the Herald carried a column with a surprising headline. It read, Why I found it so hard writing about racism in New Zealand for the Herald. In the column, journalist Wheeler Fuatai details how a conversation with Black Lives Matter organisers prompted her to abandon an article she'd been asked to write on racism in New Zealand and instead turn the spotlight back on the Herald itself over its record on race. Her decision might seem unusual or risky, but it's in keeping with calls worldwide for journalists to re-examine their treatment of race in light of the Black Lives Matter movement. Many newsrooms are experiencing moments of harsh self-reflection as a result. In the US, the New York Times underwent a staff revolt after publishing a column by the Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton, which called for the government to send in the military to quell Black Lives Matter protests. Dozens of journalists said the column put the paper's black staff in danger, eventually prompting The Times opinion section editor James Bennett to tender his resignation. In the aftermath of the incident, The Times published another column by the journalist Wesley Lowry, which touches on many of the criticisms facing newsrooms over their treatment of race. It accuses The Times and other media outlets of sidelining diverse voices, treating black experience as invalid or biased, and tailoring their content to a white audience. The Times wasn't alone in facing a reckoning. A top editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer resigned after printing the headline Buildings Matter 2 during the Black Lives Matter protests. Editors at other outlets including Variety, Bon Appetit magazine and the fashion and culture website Refinery29 stepped down under employee pressure. Some newsrooms have moved proactively to improve their coverage. In a tacit acknowledgement of its own failure to cover the issue adequately, the Washington Post has set up a dedicated unit covering race in the US. Similar discussions are starting to take place here in New Zealand. Under its new owner, Sinead Boucher, Stuff is looking to set up a section devoted to covering to Ao Māori, the Māori world. In her column for The Herald this week, Tiwila Fuatai argues that the Herald itself needs to take stock of its role in overlooking, ignoring or perpetuating racial injustice. She sat down with me this week to explain why. Kia ora, thanks for joining me. Hello. Now, your column was published on Monday and it was titled, Why I Found It So Hard to Write About Racism for the NZ Herald. But that headline and that topic wasn't your original intention for that story. So could you just say what you were originally commissioned to write about?
0: Yes, so the original brief was basically a wider stocktake of racism and how it operates in New Zealand. I was asked to look at some of the big organisations or the big parts of society, for example, child welfare, police, uh, how racism continues to operate in those spheres and contribute to inequalities and problems that we have now.
2: Right. And that wasn't exactly the story that you ended up writing. It sounds on the face of it like a good thing for a newspaper to cover, but just why did that topic change?
0: It changed um, because the first interview that I'd lined up was with Black Lives Matter Auckland, which I outlined in the column. I suppose it was just a week after the first protest march in New Zealand, and I thought they would be a great group to speak to as an anti-racism group. And it changed when they basically said they didn't want to talk to me because uh, the Herald and its coverage was racist and upheld uh, structures of white supremacy. I'm paraphrasing there.
2: What exactly did they say to, I guess, justify that assertion that the Herald upholds these structures of white supremacy?
0: They didn't give me examples. They actually... What, what they st- stuck to was that they thought that it was inappropriate for an organisation like The Herald to be holding others to account before they looked within their own. Hmm. I thought it was a good idea because it was something that needed to be done, but also I thought it was could be a great story, and I still think it could be a great story if they were to examine their own history and their own coverage and how things operate. I do think that there is... A lack of diversity in their newsroom. I also think that we've seen publicly problematic coverage pointed out, both recent and historic. Mm. So I understand. I, I understand that there is definitely value in doing something like that. I also, from my personal perspective, we operate in like sort of the way we're socialised and the way we operate. It's in an inherently racist structures, and so for the Herald to not be like that, it would be an outlier. So when we're talking about organisations like the police or Oranga Tamariki, it's not a surprise to me that they have problems of inequity, lack of opportunity, access, and that they are labelled as racist and you have to work hard to be anti-racist. You have to be the opposite. You've got to work against the status quo. I don't think it's a bad thing to stand up and say, Let's look at ourselves.
2: and and I guess when when they pointed that out, you felt that maybe that uh, self reflection, that quite hard self reflection hadn't necessarily been done, and that made you feel like, actually I probably need to start that conversation.
0: Yes, that's exactly what happened.
2: I I actually think back straight to the Paul Holmes column that printed in 2012 that called Waitangi a bullshit day. Uh, In 2014, I think they proudly said that this paper will be protest-free on Waitangi Day, and there's that kind of thing. But you're actually talking about maybe a more insidious systemic participation in Pākehā ways of doing things, white supremacy.
0: It's both, and it's really hard to articulate from a reporter's perspective. So it's a system around why you think it's appropriate to have a column like what Holmes had in the paper or why you think it's okay to present Waitangi Day coverage with a white fist on the front of your newspaper.
2: And and I guess the answer to that is maybe, and maybe this is not even conscious, as the editor said in his response to your column, but they are thinking of their coverage as being designed with a white audience in mind and it's also designed primarily and edited primarily by Pākehā people.
0: Yes, and that's where I think the self-reflection is important because the first step is just to look at yourself, and I think this is what I did when I was challenged by the piece, and I sort of had to say, what can I actually do in this situation? These are the options. And one of them was going back and saying, can we do something different? And in the very first draft of the piece, I outlined what that was like, what was like, what it was like going back to them, mm. and then being told, can you please stick to the brief? And then it sort of unfolded from there.
2: So this was actually quite a wrangle with the editors. So can you describe that process? You went to them saying, look, I think we need to do some self-reflection, and they said...
0: Um, yeah, so I went back to the editor I, 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 d- I dealt with, and I said, this is what they've raised. I actually think... It's a good idea. I gave an example of National Geographic had done a racism audit in 2018 uh, for their addition leading up to MLK Day. So I said, it's been done in the past. Could, Could we look at doing something like that? That was the first phone call and we had a bit of a break and then the second phone call was, please just continue doing what this is. And by then I had decided that I could take the brief and just say yes to the brief, sorry, and then outline through my own words why it was challenging to continue down the path that they were asking.
2: I guess this is this is personal for you, right? Like, this is... You're a Pacifica journalist. You're one of very few people of colour that are probably working for The Herald. There's not actually very uh, enough Pacifica journalists in the country.
0: Yes, I, it was definitely personal, but also... I suppose what really helped was speaking to those two women, Anjan, Raman, and Tamatha Paul. Mm. When I spoke to them, they kind of outlined the things that they do in their own immediate environment to try and combat what they th- what they see as racism and inequalities. And so I took that back to myself, and I thought, I can't actually address. Com- the composition of their editors. I can't do that from my position. I can't actually address the lack of diversity in their staff. What I can do is just outline to them what someone like me thinks when they ask an assignment like this.
2: For you that's a really big professional risk because I mean you are a freelancer and and you're not on staff. So you must have thought, look, this is worth this is a risk worth taking.
0: Yes, I definitely thought that.
2: I guess you're you're trying to make a difference to one of your places of work. But they they're not alone in this. This isn't just about the Herald. This is a media wide issue, isn't it? Like there, there there are not enough Māori and Pacifica uh journalists, not enough people of colour in general in newsrooms across the country.
0: I definitely agree with that. But I also think part of what 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 is a great thing about The issues and the conversations that are being raised right now through the Black Lives Matter movement is that we do have to take it upon ourselves to reflect and understand our own shortfalls and also uh, who can address those shortfalls. So what worked in this piece was that they came to me, which is... By the way, a great thing as a freelancer, you do want publications coming to you, um, commissioning you. Like yeah. that's a really good place to 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 be, is that they came to me going, "We want you to do this. We think you're the right person to do this," and so in that sense, I suppose I had a bit of leverage to react in the way that I did and send back a piece like I did.
2: I I guess though you're talking about it quite a small-scale re- interaction between a freelancer and
0: mm.
2: a company. But but they still have a lot of the power, right? The, the editors and the people in charge of the company are the ones that really make these decisions and decide what to publish and mm. shape the news agenda. Is that where really where your concern lies? Because we talk about, like, Māori Pacifica journalists, but actually you note in your piece that all of the editors that you dealt with, I think, are Pākehā.
0: Yes, so all the ones that I certainly deal with are Pākehā. I don't think it should be put on someone like me to try and push people who are in those positions of power towards having a more representative and more wholesome newsroom. I can't do that. And for them to do that as well, they have to understand the value in that. So understand that in 10 years' time, your audience and your readership or your viewers, you want to be right there with them and understanding the issues that, and the conversations that they're having, and part of that is looking at the makeup of your newsroom. To do that, you've got to understand the value, like I said in the piece, the value in actually diversifying.
2: What would you like to see from The Herald from here on out?
0: I think it would be a really great move for The Herald and, and us, because now I'm there talking to them about it, to do a type of examination of their past coverage. Um, I think that's a good starting.
2: You would encourage other news organisations to do that, including places like RNZ...
0: Absolutely. But I also think from audience perspective, like from a reader's perspective, if it's done properly, it'll be a really fascinating examination of a part of New Zealand history. And that's almost like an educational resource when you think about it.
2: Hey, thank you so much for speaking to me.
0: You're welcome. Thank you for having me, Hayden.
2: We asked the Herald's publisher, NZME Me, for an interview about Tiwi Lefuetai's column and what the company is doing to increase its diversity. They declined but pointed towards the statement published below the column by NZ Herald editor Murray Kirkness. Kirkness said NZME formed a diversity and inclusion committee and has committed to accountability on measurements relating to diversity of voice. He said the company accepts T. wheeler criticism and will do better. He added, We hope we can be agents of change across society, a role the Herald has fulfilled for more than 150 years. You can read his full response at nzherald.co.nz.
1: Hayden Donnell reporting there. And you can read more details of Te Fuatai's column and Murray Kirkness's response in the online version of the story. That's on the MediaWatch page of the RNZ website or the RNZ app. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, last Tuesday the front page of the Dominion Post was filled with the heartbreaking story of a young forestry worker and father, Piri Bartlett. He died in 2017 from injuries suffered while doing one of the industry's most dangerous tasks. His employer eventually admitted that it had failed to keep him safe. And Perry's partner and mother are pushing for changes now to what is one of New Zealand's deadliest industries for workers. And that exposure on the Dom Post front page will help. But the following day, the health and safety angle on the Dom Post front page was not exactly at the heart of its story. Under the headline, Gridlock City Again... The Dom Post reported on a slip that closed one northbound lane of State Highway Two on Monday afternoon, one which kept News Talk ZB's Time Saver rush hour traffic updates busy for four hours while no one was rushing anywhere in the capital.
3: Northbound traffic is absolutely
1: crawling, and that still goes back through the Mount Vic tunnel, the tail, and still busy if you go Wade's Town or through Nio as well. Several commuters told Stuff it was the worst traffic they'd ever encountered, and it was the same story on RNZ.
4: We've never, never, ever had it this bad before. We could have driven up to Wanganui by now.
1: And what made people more mad was that when NZTA posted social media alerts at 3pm, its images didn't show a great deal of stuff blocking the lane on the side of the road where the slip fell. And many people couldn't understand why what looked like a mere dribble of debris from a distance could cause such chaos for the capital's commuters. And among them was pollster and pundit David Farrer, who tweeted this.
3: Fifteen years ago, a staffer would have just grabbed a broom or a rake and cleared the small amount of dirt in ten minutes. Instead, 40,000 people spend hours in traffic as we take risk management to silly degrees.
1: The Dompost Post story on Wednesday began like this. The slip that shut down Wellington's roads
3: on Monday could barely even be considered a slip. It was, at most, three
1: wheelbarrow loads of dirt, most of which wasn't even on the road. But it was clear from even a glance at NZTA's photo, which was also on the Dom Post front page, that you need a pretty mighty wheelbarrow to move what must have been several cubic metres and just three trips. But as the Dom Post story on Wednesday went on to make clear... It took more than four hours for contractors
3: to reopen the lane because the bank alongside the road was threatening to give way and needed to be secured using a large excavator.
1: So clearly not a job for a wheelbarrow or a guy with a broom. And there was another reason also for caution, as NZTA's regional manager Mark Owen told Morning Report on Tuesday.
3: And also we've got some overhead power wires above uh, where the slip was and the crews had to get in and remove some of the loose material that was above as well.
1: Mark Owen went on to tell Morning Report on Tuesday the debris eventually filled three trucks, so even three wheelbarrows wouldn't have helped. And as for the time it took, well, NZTA's Mark Owen said it took a while to get the excavator in place to make the clearance because of the volume of cars already on the road.
3: We've seen traffic sort of head back to um, sort of 80 to 90% of, of normal.
1: So the main reason that many cars were held up for such a long time in peak time after that slip came down on Monday was that there were so many cars on the road in the first place. Turns out the so-called new normal post-lockdown is actually the old normal when it comes to commuters and their cars in the capital. That's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend but we'll be back with more on the media with Midweek Media Watch talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show at about 10.30 next Wednesday and then we're back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.